Good morning. Welcome to January once again. You guys excited? Is it cold enough for everybody? I think it's supposed to get colder this week, so that'll be fun. No, it's not going to be fun. <laughs> um, so this is the new year. It is a time bursting with excitement, with uh, the feeling of new life and new possibilities. And I really want us all to lean into that, that feeling that you can do something different now because it's a new year, because the date has changed, because like it's rolled over one year, you have this, this ability or this ex- excitement or energy to change something and do something different that you, you maybe couldn't have done you know, just a month ago or a month before that. I want you to lean into that. And we are a church where broken people find hope, and we believe that you find hope through a life following Jesus. When you follow Christ, that is how you find a life of hope. But there's a problem with that. There is a problem with that. And there's, there's this question I want to ask you, and maybe you've thought about this question. Maybe you've never thought about this question, and it's never kind of really come into your mind. But if you don't wrestle with this question, you're not going to be able to follow Christ. You're not. This question is going to trip you up whether you think about it or not. It's in your body. It's in your mind. And this is the question. Why would you follow someone that you don't know? Why would you ever follow someone that you don't know? That would be stupid, right? It would be kind of silly to follow someone you don't know. Now, if I had a will of billionaires, and I was going to build a wheel of billionaires, but I thought there's probably better things to spend our money on. Um, So imagine the wheel of fortune, except it's a wheel of billionaires, and we spin the wheel, and it's got Jeff Bezos' face on it, the owner of of Amazon. It's got, you know, Bill Gates. It's got, you know, um, Rick, not Rick Warren, but uh, Warren Buffett. I knew it was a Warren. It's got some of these other billionaire guys who have a lot of money. Maybe it's got like, uh, like Tim Robbins, the big uh, like, uh, motivational speaker. It's got some of these faces of these people that you know that are, are big time, wealthy. They've gotten all the success that we would think of. And I said, you could come up and spin the wheel. And whoever it lands on, you're going to spend a weekend at their private estate. Maybe it's going to be on an island. Maybe it's going to be like flying on a plane somewhere. You get to spend the weekend with them, picking their brain on how you could be successful in your life. If you own your own business, what, what changes you need to make? If you're, if you're working somewhere, how do you get promotion? How many of you would be interested in that sort of opportunity? Maybe you're not going to raise your hand, but you're probably thinking, yeah, I'm in, (laughs) right? Jeff's in. I mean, you would kind of be silly not to. I mean, they've got some kind of ability, right? Now, would you take their advice? Would you take their advice? If Jeff Bezos told you to make some changes in your construction business, Mike, would you take his advice? Possibly, right? And why why would you consider it? You'd at least consider it, right? Why would you consider it? Because he's shown he's able to build a business that's successful. And so we look at the outcome of someone's life and we say, wow, because they've been able to achieve this, I'm interested in the way they live. And that's the problem. That's the problem with following Christ. Why would you want to follow someone you don't really know? If you desire to build wealth and have an opportunity to be mentored, then you'd probably have a high motivation to do what they say because you want the wealth that they have or you want the success or you want your business to to have that up and to the right like their business has. 
And the pursuit of their life would motivate you to do the things they tell you to do. The self-help industry is a $10 billion industry. $10 billion. People buying books from people who have a successful life and they want a little piece of that life, so I'll read your book and find out maybe there's something I can change to be like that. And I've read a lot of self-help books and I think there's valuable insight. But you read it because you want the life they have. And you do all this stuff because you're pursuing a vision of a life that you want. And Jesus said this. He met a woman at the well. This was a Samaritan woman. So she was um, part Jewish and part Gentile, which meant that racially she was an outcast in her culture and in her society. He meets this woman at the well. He asks her for a drink. And she says, how, how are you asking me for a drink? You know, our kind don't mix. Like, how is this possible? Because he's, he's crossing a racial barrier here. And he responds to her, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew what God offers to humanity, and if you knew who I was, if you knew who it was that's talking to you and asking you for a drink, then you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you knew who Christ was and the kind of life that he offers, then you would want to pursue him and a relationship, a mentoring relationship as much or more than anybody else on the planet. If you really knew Jesus, then keeping his commands would be a no-brainer. It wouldn't be difficult. If you really knew who Christ was and the kind of life that he lived, you could see what it was like to be around him, to walk in his shoes, to be with him, to experience the, the fullness of a life that he lived that you would want to keep his commandments. You would say, well, how do I get that? And so he does these things. Well, let me try to do those things. If you had a clear vision of what it would look like to live a life saturated with peace and joy and love, with no worries, constant, consistent rest as an overwhelming, overarching theme of your life that rest lack of anxiety, lack of worry, peace, joy, the ability to be present anytime you want to be present with your family, with your loved ones, the ability to receive love well and to give love well all the time, not just when you're feeling rested and you're having a good day. If you would had a vision for that, perfect rest, then his do's and don'ts would be pretty trivial. They would. I'd be like, that's, that's all I got to do to get that? Yes, I'm in. I'm in. And you jump at pursuing those do's and don'ts as you spend this perfect, peace-filled, quality time with Christ on a daily basis. So why don't people do what Jesus says? Why don't people do what Jesus says? If you ask anybody, ask one of your friends who doesn't want to become a Christian, and you ask them this. Ask them this this week. It'll be a fun, fun little uh, thing. Say, what do, you, what do you think you would have to give up to become a Christian? Like if you decided to become a Christian, what do you think you would have to give up? And they're going to give you a list. They're going to give you a list of things they would have to give up. It might be something like this. Um, you know, no more swearing. No more temper tantrums and screaming at people in traffic. Um, maybe no more porn or bad TV shows or movies. No more drinking or smoking. No more parties, you know, the drunken kind. No more sleeping in on Sundays. No more cutting corners at work or cheating. And they would give you this big list, and I'd be like, ah, I, the, the way that I live, I would be, it would be a harsh on my mellow. 
And if I were to ask you guys, what would it take for you to become a devout follower of Jesus? Because most of you are probably on some level a follower of Jesus or desiring to be a follower of Jesus or else you wouldn't have got up on Sunday to come. So what would, it, what would you have to give up to become a devout follower of Jesus? Not like follower light that does like a lot of Christian stuff, but you know, we all could do better. What would it take for you to become a devout follower of Jesus? What would you have to give up? What's on your list? Some of the same things, maybe? On your list, there are some things that you and I truly believe are vital ingredients of the good life. We think we need these things so that we can have a good, okay life. If we didn't think we needed these things for a good life, we wouldn't have them in our life. We would swear up and down that we know they're not good for us, right? Because I've had this conversation with myself and with you guys. Oh, I know it's not good for me, but... Then we would fill in our justification for why we keep this thing around. I know it's not good, but our track record clearly shows that we think they are what we need to be okay, to survive, or to thrive. You have a vision for the good life. Every single person on the planet has a vision for what the good life here and now looks like, it feels like, and will be. It is ingrained in your body. It is in your body. It is in your mind. It is in your desires. You have a vision for the good life. And really, um, your vision is ingrained into your body. That doesn't make your body bad or good. Your body's like a dog, okay? Okay? There's not good dogs and bad dogs. Well, but <laughs> there's good owners and bad owners. My sister trains dogs. She has a bunch of dogs. Um, she trains like service dogs that can go anywhere. Like you can walk to the mall or go into a restaurant. The dog will lay under the table. It will not bark. It will not beg. It will not do anything. There could be a loud noise. The dog's not going to freak out. The dog is perfectly well-behaved. It is a joy to be around my sister's dogs. They're so wonderful to be around. You could take them for a walk, and they'll walk as fast as you walk. If you slow down, they slow down. You walk fast, they walk fast. There's no jerking your arm off. There's no licking your toes. <laughs> I'm not pointing out anybody's disgusting dog, Melissa. <laughs> There's none of that. They're just perfectly well-behaved. They're well-manicured. They're well-taken care of. And it's because Mary spends a lot of time training the dog. So the dog knows what the hand signals are. The dog knows this is what we always do. Consistency, 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 and positive reinforcement. Then the dog just does the thing. The dog doesn't know to do anything else but the good thing. This is what it's trained. And your body is like that. Your body's like that. Once you train your body to do something regularly, you're going to do it automatically. That's why some of you swear when somebody threatens you or does something to you. It just comes out automatic. And I've even seen people go, <clears throat> you know, and they're like, it's like I didn't even get to choose or think about that. It just happened. It just happened. That's why um, in your life you just have these knee-jerk reactions. You can drive a car without having to think about, okay, now I put my hand on the 10 and the 2 and the thing. If you had to think about it all, it's really scary. That's why it's scary riding with a new driver. Because you could see their brain like panicking and like melting down, like I have to calculate, I gotta make the turn, and there's a car over there, and, you know? and they're freaking out, and they're panicking. But those of us who have been driving for a long time, we don't think about anything. We don't even pay attention to the road. 
You know? Who needs a blinker? Right? We, it's become ingrained in us. And your will is the manager of everything. Your will picks and chooses what you will or won't do. The owner of your body is your will. That's your manager. And the will is supposed to train the dog how to be a good dog and do good things for a good life. Your will is supposed to direct your mind, your emotions, and your body, and your desires to follow Christ so that you can have the good life that Christ offered to the woman at the well. We're supposed to set up our lives so that the will has a rich variety of things to pick from, healthy foods, smorgasbord of healthy activities, healthy brain things. That's what Philippians 4 talks about. Whatever is, is pure and lovely and good and, and wholesome and true. And all these things are supposed to be available to us so that our will can choose good things for the body all the time. That's how it's supposed to be set up. So we have this rich variety to choose from that are good and healthy and holy to think about, to do, and to pursue. And the flesh, when the Bible talks about the flesh, it's not talking about your body, your skin. It's not talking about the dog. When the Bible talks about the flesh, it's talking about this whole system of the will, the desires, your mind. All of that without any influence from the the Holy Spirit of God. It's your whole system. It's the manager. It's the dog. It's the, the emotions. It's all of the other things as they exist without any help, any supernatural power, any influence from God. That's the flesh. It's your abilities on your own, your talents, everything that you would have and that you could do without God. That's the flesh. That's the flesh. And the Bible says when, it, when we live that way in just the flesh, we're in trouble because we don't have this influence in our life because the, we're designed by our Creator to pursue things that are good and those things come from God. So, if your vision of the good life includes never being disrespected, you're going to have a problem with anger. If your vision of the good life means only eating what tastes good to you and gives you the right feeling, then you're going to have a tough life. If your vision of the good life means an orgasm on demand, that your sexual needs and your desires will be met just like you want them to, you're going to have a tough life. If, it, if your vision of the good life means sleeping in or avoiding sweat or hard work, you're going to have a tough life. If it includes having plenty of money all the time, you're going to have it rough. Or avoiding too much pain or discomfort. Does your vision of the good life include a really good view of how to manage pain and suffering and discomfort? If not, then you won't be living the good life. You won't be able to. You'll want to escape pain or suffering anytime it comes into your life. Do you have a strategy for dealing with it? Well, there's good news and bad news. The good news we'll get to, but first the bad news is you're toast. You're toast, I'm toast, we're all toast. This is bad. This is a problem. The bad news is we're toast. We can't possibly follow Jesus consistently unless we know who he is, right? We establish if you knew who Jesus was and what his life was like, then you would want to follow him. But you can't consistently follow him because you don't know him. And how do you get to know him unless you hang out with him? 
and you can't hang out with him because your vision of the good life doesn't include all that crazy stuff he's doing. So what do you do? You're like in this catch-22. You're like between a, a rock and a hard place. You can't gain this vision of the good life from God without following Jesus. And since you can't follow him consistently, you don't know him. And why would someone try to keep the commandments of someone they don't know? I don't know him because I, I can't seem to follow him. And I can't trust someone I don't know very well. We're toast. There is no hope. And this is where a lot of people live their Christian life. They come to this place where they, they try, they get excited about hope and following Christ. They try it for a little bit and then they kind of fall off and Christ goes over here and they didn't do what Christ said to do. So then they lose hope. They lose hope. Because there's no consistency, they can't really get that traction of following Christ and experiencing the life in Christ. And they flip-flop between, let me give Jesus' life a try and I can't do it consistently, so why try? The problem is vision. If you don't have a clear, legitimate vision of a good life as a follower of Jesus, you will always end up burning out. For instance, my vision of being in shape is when I put on my shirt in the morning. My vision of being in shape, of working out, is that moment where I look in the mirror in the morning after I get out of the shower and I don't have a shirt on, instead of going, oh, I go, oh. <laughs> like, that's all it is. The working out thing is just so that my wife will be like, wow, look at them jeans, you know? Like, I just, I want that to happen. I want to be like, to where I can like flex in public and people... You know, feel a little intimidated. You know, or just, yeah, and like you could see it move under my shirt. You can't see it now, you know? Or do that pectoral thing like, uh, like Terry, like the, the, the guy, Terry Cruz, is that his name? That's my vision of being in shape. It's all of the cool stuff that happens after all the hard work. You get what I'm saying? It's the, wow, you know, I feel good. I feel, I feel like I could run like a half marathon. It would be so awesome to feel like I could run a half marathon or to feel like I could just lift stuff and be not having my back sore and tired. And, like, I want that result. I want the byproduct of that. But my vision of being in shape doesn't include eating right. It certainly doesn't include getting up and going to the gym. Ew. <laughs> I don't want to do all that stuff. That's not my vision of the good life. And so, consequently, <laughs> I'm not Mr. Muscles up here. My vision of the good life, I, I, I have this thing, well, it would be nice to be that, but all this other stuff would, be, would take away from my life, would be a bad life. Ooh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to eat more vegetables. Ooh. I just want to eat what I want and look like the rock. I don't want to work out. I just want to look like that. My vision doesn't include the process as part of the good life. It's the same thing if you're trying to lose weight. You have this vision of the skinny life, but does it include the process of all the walking, the exercise, the eating right? Or are those things you have to give up are those sacrifices you have to make to get to the body that you want? And as long as you view it as this is a sacrifice I have to do, 
then it's not a good life that you're going to be excited about living. You just want to eat whatever you want and look the way you want, just like I want to look like the rock. The person addicted to pornography, when they think about not using um, sexual material for gratification or to take care of their needs, they think about always saying no to themselves. Man, I'd have to always say no to myself. I would never get what I want. I would never have my needs taken care of. I would feel unloved and ashamed. Maybe you think about giving up alcohol or drugs. You think about, I'm not going to have any fun. I'm not going to have any social life. I'll have no way to relax or chill out. And I'll be always suffering with no relief. Maybe if you think about controlling your anger, you think about, what, you want, me, you want me to just be walked on all the time? You want me to just be disrespected by everybody and just take it like I'm some spineless wimp? Like that's what you're asking of me? To just take it? Constantly be disrespected? Never get anything I want? Because you know what? I can't trust anybody to take care of me. I have to make it happen. We're toast. We have this vivid vision ingrained in our bodies of the good life that turns out to not be very good. But because of the combination of the body that we have that's trained like a dog to just run and chase this stuff when it sees it, we pursue what is not good for us. The desires we've allowed to run wild in our lives have fully blossomed into obsession. What is the good news Pastor Ron, what's the good news? The good news is that we're, we're not alone. The disciples were in the same boat. Literally. Some of you guys, Cam's like, nope, we're not doing it. <laughs> you know, because Jesus was in boats. Yeah, you're catching up. Okay. <laughs> Jesus calls the disciples in Matthew chapter 4. He was a rabbi. He says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And they left their nets and they followed Christ. And in the moment they left their nets, they had a vision for the good life. And they thought that Jesus would give this good life to them. Later on, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, you know, there's some prophets and some of this. And they said, well, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my my Father in heaven has supernaturally told you this truth. Peter saw who Jesus really was. He saw his real identity. You're the Messiah, the Savior of the whole world. And instantly, Jesus, seeing that Peter really knew him, felt confident enough to share the full plan of what God is calling him to do. He says, we're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to sacrifice myself for the sins of the world. And Peter says, no! No, 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 no! No, we're not doing that! This is the worst plan ever! To which Jesus famously says, get thee behind me, Satan. Peter was gifted with this vision of the true identity of Christ. And right after he says, you're the Messiah, you're the one we've all been waiting for, he says, your plan is stupid. Let's not do that. That's good news. Because that means 
we have hope. Because if Peter could see Christ and be with Christ and still not really know Him and know His plan and not want to follow Him, but then later on, later on, look at this, the same Peter in 2 Peter 2 writes this, Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace, grace, and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of our Lord, Jesus our Lord. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. This isn't just nice language. This isn't just like a a nice thing to say at the beginning of your letter. This was Peter's real life. He lived a life where grace and peace were an overwhelming, overarching theme. So the guy who said, no, we're not doing your plan, the guy who cussed out a little girl when she accused him of being a follower of Christ, that was his dog. That was his body. That was, that was an involuntary action. I truly believe it. Because Peter, he said, I will never deny you. And then all of a sudden, he was afraid. He was scared. Somebody was threatening him. And he had a defensive reaction and just blurted it out. And he swore, I don't know this guy. That same guy who later on, he had a problem with the Gentiles. And he was two-faced. Who when, when God said, Go to Cornelius' house and eat with him. Peter said, there's no way I'm doing that. That's gross. He's a Gentile. I'm not eating that food. He went and did it anyways. This is the guy who wrote this. His life is full of peace. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you. This isn't just nice language. This is his life. And tradition holds many scholars believe that this was written right before his death where he died crucified upside down i want you to have the life of peace and grace that i have something happened something changed in peter this means something can happen in you and something can happen in me do you know what changed peter finally got a clear vision of what the good life really is so how do you get a vision like peter how do i get a vision like peter of what the good life in christ really is all about. Something that's so vivid that I, I want to pursue it like I would want to hang out and learn from Jeff Bezos. How do I get that so clear in my mind? The answer is love. The answer is love. In John 14, Jesus says this. He says, Truly, truly, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I do, he shall do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do. That my Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, then keep my commandments. If you love me, then keep my commandments. What is love? What is love? 1 Corinthians 13 says love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Last week we talked about love and chocolate cake. 
and how we might say, I love chocolate cake. When in reality, we don't, we're not saying we want to take care of chocolate cake. We want what's good for chocolate cake. We want chocolate cake to have a good life, to feel fulfilled, to reach you know, <laughs> the, the, the greatest level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. No, what we say when we say we love chocolate cake is I want to eat you. I want to devour you. I want to consume you upon my desires. If you love chocolate cake, then you want to take care of it, not cut it. Love is pursuing what is best for the loved. So what Jesus is really saying is this. If you love me, if you want what is best for me, then keep my commandments. If you want what is best for me, then keep my commandments. If you love Jesus, that means you want what is best for him, for God, then keep my commandments. And let's be honest, for many of us, that's the deal breaker. That's the deal breaker. That's hard. It's not that we don't want the good things for Jesus. It's not that we don't want Jesus to have a good life. It's that we just don't trust that by placing Christ's needs first, that our wants and needs will be met. We don't trust that if I put Christ's needs first, what He wants, what's good for Him first, that I will be taken care of. And that's why we scramble to do the things we do. Remember the list of what you'd have to give up to be a devout follower of Jesus. Anger management, always get walked on, always be spineless. Or if you're overweight, uh, I won't be able to eat what I want. I'll never be satisfied. I'll be empty. You won't be able to pursue your own pleasure or release. Nobody can be trusted to take care of me. Nobody can be trusted to take care of me. I have to hoard money and stuff because nobody can be trusted to take care of me. And this is the hang-up. Nobody can be trusted to take care of me. How can Jesus actually ask this of us and of His disciples? Well, to be fair, Jesus has demonstrated, I will take care of you. Right? Jesus has demonstrated, I will do what is best for you. He demonstrated it to His disciples. He went to the cross. He died for them. And in that passage that we just read, He says, I'm going to die for you, which is what's best for you, so that your sins can be forgiven. Then I'm going to leave. I'm going to go back up to heaven. Do you think Jesus wanted to leave His disciples? No. He says, I go to heaven to prepare a place for you to do what's best for you and if i go then i can send the holy spirit so not just 12 people can hang out with me but everybody can have the holy spirit the holy spirit of god can then be available to everybody i will do what is best for you this is what love is so if jesus loves us if god so loved the whole world god does what is best for your good and he calls us be in relationship with me. Do what is best for me. Even if it includes death. Even if it includes pain and suffering. Jesus says, I do what is best for you. So, 
How did Peter learn this? How did Peter learn this? To have a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is our, our last reference today. In John 21, after Peter had denied Christ, he finally gets this meeting where he gets to kind of clear the air. And they're sitting on the shore and they're eating fish together. And Jesus, sensing the tension in the air between them, because Peter had denied him, and then Christ died on the cross, came back from the dead. Now they're eating fish together. He says, Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And he said unto him, Yeah, you know that I love thee. You know, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. And then Jesus asks him again, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He said unto him, Yeah, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He said unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time. It's like he's making him repeat himself. And remember, he had denied Christ three times. And he says, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus says unto him, feed my sheep. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is saying this very clearly. Peter, if you love me, then take care of others. Do you love me? Then put others' needs above yours. Do you love me? Then take care of others more than yourself. Do you love me? Then take care of others. And Jesus gives Peter this vision of the transformation in the life that, will come, that he will come to live. He says in verse 18, and this is kind of, kind of cryptic if you don't think about it, but in verse 18 he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. Peter, when you were young, you took care of yourself. You took care of your own needs. You scrambled when somebody, when somebody called you out. You, took, you met them. You were defensive. You told them who was who and what was what. You took care of yourself. You dressed yourself. You clothed yourself. You worried about your own needs and your own self. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will clothe you. Another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. You see the transformation? Peter goes from you will take care of yourself to someone else will take care of you and they'll even take you where you don't want to go. This is the transformation. And he was talking about his death. When you were young, you took care of yourself and you decided what you'd wear and where you, were, where you would go. But when you were old, you will come to a place where you will not dress yourself. You will be carried on a cross. And as you're going to your death, you will trust that even in death, I am taken care of. I'm taken care of. See, Peter was going to come to a place where he realized that God takes care of him. That's how he could go to the cross. That's how Peter could die. Without scrambling, without yelling, without being old Peter. I'm taken care of. 
even if my body is going to be killed, I am cared for by Jesus. So I'm okay. And I can have perfect peace. And I can take care of other people. And that's what it comes down to. That's what it comes down to. As we see in the rest of the New Testament, Peter struggles, he stumbles, but he trusts. And when God tells him to do something, like go to Cornelius' house, he freaks out, but then he goes. And when Paul confronts him to his face about how he treats the Gentiles, he freaks out, but then he corrects it. And when his life comes to a close, and he will be killed for following Jesus, he says, I hope you can have grace and peace like me. It all comes down to trust. Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust him? Do you trust Jesus to do what is best for you? To lead you to do what is best for not just you, but for others as well? If you trust Jesus, then do what is best for Jesus. Rebuild your vision of what the good life is based on what Jesus says to do, how Jesus says to live, and let him sort out the rest. Put Jesus first. Put others first. Let's pray. Dear God, this morning we confess to you that oftentimes do what's best for me is the deal breaker. Many of us, we don't want to do what is best for you. We want to do what, is, what we feel in our mind, in our bodies, in our hearts, in our emotions. We want to do what we think is best for us. And we don't have a good vision of that. We don't have a, a vision that can be trusted. So God, I pray that you would transform our vision because we can't change our desires. We can't have even good intentions unless we have a vision for what the good life really is in you. Not just the outcome, but the day-to-day -day walking, the putting you first and realizing that putting you first means putting others first. And learning how that feels and what that's like to not presume that we should be treated better or any way. To not pretend and to not push. God, I pray that we would trust you. That we would place others first. That we would catch a vision for what it would be like to live a life of actual peace, serving and let that be the abundant wellspring. That's the deal breaker. That's the key. So God, give us grace. Your playground of learning, of education. Give us grace this week to, in those moments when we panic and we think we have to take care of ourselves, and maybe that includes an unhealthy habit or activity, and we, we want to run to that to instead say, God, I trust you. I'm scared. I want to do this. I know it's not what's right, but I trust you. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go to something else. I'm going to pick one of the good things. I'm going to pick one of the disciplines, spend time in my Bible or prayer. I'm going to fast. I'm going to call somebody. I'm going to confess what's on my mind, what I'm scared of. And instead of scrambling and giving in to our desires that have proved to be so unhealthy for us, that we would trust you, trust that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.